Good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, uh, to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Uh, as some of you know, uh, we have been working through over the past uh, month or so a short series on the role of elders in the church, uh, elders, shepherds, leaders, teachers uh, in the church. And we come to our last sermon in that series uh, on First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. So let's pray together before we read that text. Our Father in heaven, we uh, turn to you once again, seeking your blessing, seeking the gift of your spirit, uh, seeking humble hearts. Uh, Father, we pray that you would give me uh, words that are true and right and good and faithful to your word, uh, that you would work in each of our hearts to open us up to what you have to say, to humble us, uh, to uh, soften our hard hearts, that we would receive your word as truth, and that we would be uh, encouraged and changed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, gender is a pretty hot topic in our day, you may have noticed. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Uh, do you get to choose? Uh, if, if you do get to choose, are the choices limited to two? Uh, some say that there are dozens of gender options. Um, Sometimes the conversation gets a little muddied in the church because we confuse a cultural definition of manhood and womanhood with the biblical definition. Uh, like, uh, you know, sometimes we say uh, women are to stay at home and to cook and men are to be entrepreneurial business people. And yet, as you read through the scriptures, you find this biblical example of Jacob who stays at home and cooks and you find the example of the woman in Proverbs 31, who's this entrepreneurial businesswoman. And so we have to be wise, right, not to confuse uh, what is cultural with what is biblical. And yet, when we turn to even the first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God made two genders, male and female, he created them. I recognize that uh, many make a distinction between uh, someone's biological sex and uh, gender identity. Uh, we don't find that distinction in the Bible, and certainly not in Genesis chapter 1. We simply find two genders, male and female. And while sin corrupts our bodies and our souls and even our gender identities, uh, we shouldn't confuse the corruption and the confusion of sin uh, with what is good and right and true. Now this conversation is fraught with 
difficulties. And I've probably already insulted someone in the room. And I'm bound to make some mistakes and maybe insult or offend some more people as I go. Uh, I can't say everything even that I'd like to say. Uh, And so I would ask for grace as we move through this text. And uh, if you find yourself getting upset with the things that I'm saying, I would encourage you to come and talk with me. I would love uh, to talk about these things. I'm happy to engage further. And I'm happy to be wrong and even to learn uh, if you can show me the truth from Scripture. So uh, we're not going to talk today about just gender in general. Uh, Again, uh, we're talking about gender in the the church specifically. Uh, we're We're answering the question, why elders must be men? We've been talking about elders for five weeks or so, and we've kind of assumed the whole time, I've used these masculine pronouns, uh, to refer to the elder, and so some of you may have been wondering, well, why? Why do elders have to be men? So we're going to talk about that. Um, this is the last sermon in that series. We're going to clarify sort of why we land here as a church. Um, again, I'm not going to answer every question you might have about gender roles and gender identity, uh, but I do want to answer the question, why, why must only men be elders in the church? And I think this text, 2 Timothy 1 Timothy, 1, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, I think this text helps do that. Of course, we'll touch on some other points along the way. Let me give you kind of a summary to start with of uh, this passage, 1 Timothy 2, summary of these five verses. And that is to say this, here's what, what Paul says. He says, women are, are not to be teachers, they're not to exercise authority over men in the context of the church. Not because of cultural reasons, nor because of bigotry and bias, but because of the order that God has placed in creation, which an order which poetically reflects God's relationship to his creation as a whole. Uh, This in no way means that women are inferior or less than. In fact, God dignified uh, womanhood by allowing women to play a role in bringing the Redeemer into the world. So women don't have a lesser status, right? But but women, too, are saved just like men are uh, as they persevere in faith. Now, you can see our outline in the back of your bulletin if you're interested in following along there. We're going to sort of work through this in four points. Uh, First is we'll talk about variety in giftedness. We'll talk about teaching in the church. We'll talk about poetry in creation. We'll talk about dignity in redemption. So variety and giftedness, teaching in the church, poetry and creation, and dignity and redemption. Uh, So first, variety in giftedness. You know, as we approach this text, uh, 1 Timothy 2, I want you to realize a little bit about the context, uh, the other verses around it. Paul is giving Timothy instructions on how the church should function. This certainly relates to everyday life, but he's particularly thinking about the gathered community of God's people. And so his self-stated goal in 1 Timothy 3.15 is to teach how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The word church, uh, I never tire of saying, means assembly. The word church means gathering. And so that whenever you read the word church, it always has in mind a gathering of some sort, whether that is the local gathering here and now, or whether that is the final gathering on the last day for which Jesus is presently gathering together his sheep. Either way, church, the word church refers to a gathering. It refers to an assembly. 
And, and the point here is that Paul is giving instructions for the church, for the assembly of God's people, for the household of God, the, the family meetings of God's people. Uh, we see this in part because Paul addresses uh, in chapter 2 the issues of prayer and the issue of teaching. Uh, these are, would have been two of the main components of a weekly worship service in that day, prayer and teaching. And, of course, Paul goes on in chapter 3 to talk about leadership in the church, uh, both elders and deacons. And so he's talking about life in the body. That's the context of these verses. Life in the body, particularly the gathered people of God. How are we to act in the church, in the gathered people? So that's the literary context within 1 Timothy. Um, I, I want to say something that I hope will help set the stage for what follows, which is more about sort of the theological context for, for this, and that is that everyone has different roles in the church. It's not about rights or, or about, uh, it's not about rights, but it's about calling. It's about God's calling on our lives. In fact, someone said to me this week that, uh, that they weren't seven feet tall, uh, they weren't athletic, and so they were probably never going to be a basketball star. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it's not about their right to become a basketball star, but about God's, in this case, gifting and calling for this person. This is about who God made them to be. And so we all have different callings in life, don't we? And our goal should be to find out where we fit in. Who has God made me to be in life? Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, which was read earlier, emphasizes this in the church. It says there are varieties of gifts and varieties of services and varieties of activities, varieties of members of the body, ears and eyes and toes and nose, it goes on to say. And, and I am going to say, as, as we move on, uh, that uh, with all the myriad of roles, that there are some people who are excluded from one particular role in the church because of their gender. Now, I, I know how that sounds today. I really do. Uh, and I, I hope to explain that well and not end up with hate mail. Um, but let me say two things uh, about this from what we've said already. And that is that, one, again, there are a myriad of roles in the church. This is not relegating women to the sidelines of ministry or the sidelines of the congregation. And, and second, the truth of the matter is, there are only three elders in our church at the moment. Uh, myself, David, and Scott, three men who are elders in their church. Most of you sitting in the pews are not elders, men and women, right? You're not elders. And so this is not relegating women to a second-class status any more than it's relegating the rest of the men in the church to a second-class status. Now, again, this is not to say that there are not gifted women. Uh, each has a gift, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10. Everyone in the body is gifted. Uh, this is not even to say that uh, there, there are no women who are gifted as teachers. There are. There are women who are gifted teachers. But it is to say that God has not called them to teach in the context of the church. And we'll get into that and spell that out. Therefore, he has not called them to the role of elder in the church. Okay, first we're going we're gonna to look at that God has not called women to be teachers. And then we're going to ask maybe the more burning question, why not? Why not? Okay, so, so there's a variety of giftedness in the church. Everyone is given gifts to use for the building up of God's house. Um, let's talk about teaching in the church. Look at verse 11 again. 
Uh, Verse 11, Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, uh, first, it needs to be pointed out that the goal here of Paul's words, the the very first goal, is that uh, women would learn. Uh, Now, that may not seem too radical to us today in the 21st century, but that in and of itself was actually liberating in Paul's day. People often quote the Jewish Talmud, uh, which at one point says, I'm not making this up, uh, just check the internet, right? You'll know it's true. It's a joke. Um, uh, uh, There's one point in the Jerusalem Talmud says, uh, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. That was the context in which Paul says, let a woman learn. Paul was on the cutting edge of his day, right? Whatever you think about Paul, uh, he was progressive for the first century. Uh, The word quiet here, let a woman learn quietly. Uh, The word quiet here does not necessarily mean silence, uh, but actually means to have a quiet demeanor. Look back a few verses, chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, which talks about uh, Paul desires all Christians to live a peaceful and quiet life. All Christians live a peaceful and quiet life. Doesn't mean that we all have to walk around in silence. He's talking about our demeanor. Uh, The word submission uh, essentially means placing oneself under the authority of another. Uh, Paul says here, women are called to learn with quietness and submission. Submission to who? Well, uh, submissive to their teachers. Um, So there's one commentator that points out, uh, quietness and submission are not negative qualities with reference to learning. They are the way to learn. It's the way to learn, right? Through quietness, through submission, you place yourself under the tutelage of a teacher. It's important to understand this because as we look throughout Scripture, we find that actually the words quiet and submissive apply elsewhere to both men and women in the church. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. That is for all Christians. Not just women, but women and men. And so all Christians at times are called to be quiet and submissive. So at this point, at least in verse 11, uh, Paul hasn't said anything unique uh, to women. He's just saying this is how you learn quietly and submissively, uh, which doesn't mean you turn your brain off. It doesn't mean you don't interact. uh, But there is an attitude of a willingness to learn, which is different from the attitude of being ready to challenge or being so raucous and noisy that you're not paying attention, right? There's a quiet, submissive way of a willingness to learn from your teacher. And yet Paul is speaking uh, particularly to to women here. He says, I want your attitude to be that of one who is ready to learn, ready to learn, which of course would be a good exhortation for all of us. Now, I also need to mention at this point the word submission, right? The word submission has such a bad name uh, in our culture. Um, and yet submission, biblically, is just the flip side of authority. If one person has authority, the other person is called to submit to that authority. In Scripture, wives are called to submit to their husbands, children to their parents, citizens to civil authorities, the congregation to its leaders. Christ submits himself to the Father. One commentator asks, can essential equality and functional differentiation exist side by side? Functional equality, 
essential equality and functional differentiation. Underlying much of the discussion, he says, lies this implicit assumption that a limited role necessitates a diminished personal worth. The problem with that thought, that a limited role necessitates a diminished personal worth, is that was not true with Christ in his submission to his Father, in his obedience to his Father. Christ's submission to his Father did not imply that he had a diminished personal worth. No Christian in their right mind would say that. And so we don't want to be silly and say that authority somehow means superiority. Uh, Submission does not imply inferiority. You know, does the fact that I'm the papa and my boys are the sons, does that mean that I'm superior and they are inferior? No. Just ask them. They'll tell you. Does the fact that I'm the pastor and you are the congregation mean that I am superior and you are inferior? Not at all. If you've been around long enough, you've figured that out. Uh, does the fact that, I am the, uh, that, that your boss is the employer and you are the employee mean that she is superior and you are inferior? No, not at all. And, and th- that is a misunderstanding of authority. And so, yes, by all means, reject the misunderstandings of authority that equate authority with superiority. But don't thereby reject authority itself. Don't throw the proverbial baby out the window with the bathwater. But let's move on to verse 12, because it gets even more controversial. Verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Uh, I first want to point out, first want to note that grammatically, uh, there are two things that Paul says he does not permit. Uh, He does not permit a woman to teach men, and he does not permit a woman to exercise authority over men. Some want to limit this in this verse uh, to really one thing. They say Paul is talking about authoritative teaching. So women can teach as long as it's not authoritative teaching. Then you have to sort of figure out, well, what's authoritative teaching and what's not authoritative teaching. But, um, but most Greek grammarians that I uh, read say that that's just grammatically unlikely. Uh, to teach and to exercise authority in the Greek are actually separated by five words. It's not like they're right next to one another, modifying one another. Separated by five words. They're two distinct concepts in the sentence. Uh, they're not meant to be merged into one. And in fact, the word that joins the two together, one of the words, one of those five, that joins the two together is the word or, or nor, uh, which you find in places like Galatians 3.28, which say, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Well, Jew and Greek do not modify one another, right? Uh, It's talking about two distinct realities. And the same is true here, teaching nor exercising authority. These are two things that Paul says he does not permit. Besides that, uh, to say that Paul only forbids authoritative teaching, whatever that means, not just teaching, uh, in some ways shows a confusion about the role of the teacher in the church. We have been talking about the shepherd leader in the church for a month now. We've seen that teaching is the primary way that shepherds exercise their authority. Why is that? Well, because scripture is what is authoritative. 
better uh, God is the one who is authoritative, right? And Scripture is God's speech, and so it carries his authority. And so on the one hand, if the way that leaders in the church exercise their authority is, is through teaching, right, if that is the primary way that we exercise our authority in the church, uh, that means teaching itself right, really becomes the authoritative act. But second, teaching Scripture right, is always authoritative because Scripture is authoritative. Right? When is Scripture not authoritative? When does Scripture not bear with it God's authority, His jurisdiction, His right to speak? And so Paul is, is not permitting women to teach or exercise authority in part because teaching is a manifestation of the elders' authority. Still two distinct realities. I know that I'm blurring the line a little bit. Teaching and exercising authority, but um, teaching in some ways is a manifestation of the authority. Um, I know some of you are still wondering, well, okay, why not? Why not? Why does Paul not permit this? Well, bear with me. We will get there, I promise. Um, some might ask, well, are, are women never called to teach in any context ever? Um, well, actually, uh, there are times when women are called to teach in Scripture. Uh, so older women are called to teach younger women, for example, in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And Paul here is saying he's not permitting a woman to teach a man. Others say that this verse only applies to teaching on Sunday morning, right? Only applies to this service. It doesn't apply to anything outside of this service. Um, therefore, it doesn't apply to Sunday school, which is not a part of the service. Uh, it doesn't apply to small groups, which don't take place on Sunday. Um, you know, as one who has a high view of the Sunday morning service, I still feel like that distinction doesn't carry as much weight as people would like it to. Uh, the early church met in, in houses. There's no indication that gathering together in someone's house on Sunday morning would have had one set of rules and gathering together in the same house on Wednesday night would have had a different set of rules, much less earlier Sunday morning for Sunday school. You just don't find that distinction in the Bible, and so it's not a distinction that we can bring into the conversation. Rather, we're not to focus on where or when, but who, because that's what Paul focuses on. Remember, Paul's self-stated goal is to teach how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. Again, the assembly, the gathering of God's people. So to whom does this prohibition apply? To the gathered people of God. When the church gathers for worship, for, for Sunday school, for small groups, women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. And what this means is this prohibition does not apply to the university campus, which is not the gathered people of God. It does not apply to the American Academy of Pediatrics or the Rotary Club or the Bar Association or any society or association or academy or club that is not the gathered people of God. Which uh, also, by the way, this, this applies to, doesn't apply to teaching other things other than Scripture. Paul is, not speaking, Paul is speaking about teaching the gospel here. He's talking about speaking scripture, uh, teaching uh, theology. He's not talking about uh, teaching about finances or real estate or architecture or anything like that. He's talking about teaching about spiritual things in the context of the local church. And in that context, he says, women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, some people object to this. Uh, Biblically, they, they say, what about Priscilla? Uh, Acts chapter 18, 
Uh, Apollos is, is preaching boldly, but a little bit badly. And uh, we're told in Acts 18, so when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Hence, Priscilla taught Apollos, which I, I agree, I think she did. But there are two important comments to make about that. Uh, the first is, uh, never try to make the exception, if this is an exception, never try to make the exception the rule. Right? There, there are almost always exceptions to things. Exceptions do not make or break the rule. Uh, you, you know, children play this game all the time. Uh, if you have small children, they say, well, well, I, I got to stay up till 10 o'clock last week. And you say, well, it doesn't matter. Your bedtime is 8. Right? The exception does not change the rule. Second, Priscilla is actually not an exception. And here's why. Three friends sitting around the kitchen table do not count as the gathered people of God. Mutually teaching and learning from one another is not the same as being in the position of the teacher. Right? So James, in James chapter 3, verse 1, I think it is, James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Which assumes that not everyone in the church is a teacher. Even if at times we might learn something from one another. Teachers often learn from their students. That doesn't mean that the students should get paid for that job and the teachers should be sitting in their chairs. I learn from many of the godly women in our church. But there's a difference between learning from one another in the course of casual conversation, in the course of life, and opening the Word of God in the church to teach. And so with Priscilla in Acts 18, we have this example of a godly, learned woman using her gifts to encourage Apollos to teach correctly. She corrects him. She teaches him in this casual context. But does that, but does that, um, she does that not as the teacher, uh, right, not as the pastor, but as one person sitting across the table from another and saying, I think you've got this wrong. Let's, let's work this out. You might wonder then, okay, well, where's the line? And uh, I, I will happily admit that there are some gray areas, but there are many things that are clear. Sunday service, Sunday school, small groups, these are clearly the gathered household of God. Gathering with a few friends to chat where no one is formally teaching, uh, that's not the gathered household of God. And of course, Women are, are welcome and invited to participate even if the gathering, in the gathering of God's people, right? They, they can talk, they can share in Bible studies and Sunday school classes. They just can't be the teacher. Okay, the question persists, though. Why not? Why not? Okay, so there's a variety in giftedness. Everyone is given gifts to use for the building up of God's house. There is teaching in the church. It's reserved for men in the context of the gathered people of God, the question is, why? And that brings us to our third point, which is poetry in creation. Uh, some people believe that what Paul is saying here is that because the women of his day were uneducated, uh, they should be ready to learn, but uh, once they learn, they can then teach. And so he's just, just a temporary prohibition, some say. Others believe it's specific to the situation in the church of Ephesus. Therefore, it's not universal. It just has to do with some of the conflict going on in the church in Ephesus at that time. Those are both interesting theories, but here's the problem with them both. 
Look at the reasons Paul gives in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, uh, Paul says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul grounds his exhortation uh, not in the cultural historical moment and not in the situation in the Ephesian church. Paul grounds his exhortation in the creation and the fall. The word for in verse 13, that begins verse 13, denotes cause. Paul is saying, here's the reason for this. Adam was created first, then Eve. Now, there are some who object uh, to this by saying, well, if Paul's logic is true, uh, then the animals are the only ones who should teach because they were formed before Adam. Okay, fair enough. But Paul is going off the, the, this Old Testament concept of the rights of the firstborn, that the firstborn son had authority and primacy. Of course, it didn't matter if, if there was a sheep or a goat before, born before him. But actually, if you turn to Genesis 2, which is what Paul is thinking of and quoting from, you see that, that Adam was made first and Eve was made as a helper for him. Now, helper is not a disparaging remark. God is called a helper in Scripture. He is our helper. In fact, the name uh, Eliezer, uh, the, the word Ezer there is the word for help. Eliezer means God is my help. God is my help. And, and that's the same word used, uh, used in uh, Genesis 2, Ezer. And so uh, God had decided he wanted man to have a helper like God, a helper, but bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. So God created woman. The point in verse 14 is, is not, decidedly not, that uh, women are more gullible. That's the way some people have read this verse, right? Uh, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It's not saying that, that women are more gullible and that's why they shouldn't teach. In fact, uh, one commentator, William Mounts, uh, puts it this way. He says, if verse 14 is teaching something about the nature of Eve that corresponds to the nature of the Ephesian women, gullibility, uh, then by implication, it is teaching something about the nature of Adam that corresponds to the nature of the Ephesian men. If the Ephesian women may not teach because Eve was deceived, would it not follow that the Ephesian men may not teach because Adam sinned knowingly without the excuse of deception? So does it really turn out better for us if that's what it's about? Women were deceived, we were just disobedient. <laughs> Paul talks elsewhere actually about deception quite a bit. The deception of both men and women. See that in Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and 2nd Thessalonians. Paul even talks about himself being deceived in Romans 7. So the point here is not that women are susceptible to deception, but men are not. It's not what Paul is getting at in that verse. The point is, in this case, Eve was deceived and Adam was not. So, therefore, if Adam had led well in his family and had not given up his authority to lead, the fall would have never happened. In fact, God's accusation of Adam in Genesis 3, verse 17, is not simply that he ate of the tree. God's accusation is 
that he listened to the voice of his wife and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis 3.17. What is God getting at when he says that? Because you listened to the voice of your wife. He's saying because you followed your wife into sin rather than leading your wife in righteousness. Adam's role was to be the leader in his family, and he failed to be a leader. Therefore, Adam, not Eve, as the head of the household, is held responsible for the advent of human sin. In Scripture, Eve is not the one blamed for sin. Adam is, because he failed to lead well, and that was his job. Another commentator says, The Genesis temptation, therefore, is a parable of what happens when male leadership is abrogated. Eve took the initiative in responding to the serpent. Adam let her do so. Really, if you read the text, Adam was just standing there, sort of like a dope, not saying anything. Thus, the appeal to Genesis 3 serves as a reminder of what happens when God's ordained pattern is undermined. It's what happens when men fail to lead. We just sit around and wait for someone else to do it. Okay, so God has set up this order. The question is still, why? An order in creation that was set up, that was undone in the fall. But why does God set it up this way? Some uh, would say it, it still seems like kind of a bum deal for women. Only men get to be leaders in the home and in the church. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, you know, Deborah has said to me before, Deborah's my wife, for those who don't know, uh, she has said that she's actually happy that I am the one that has to make the final decisions in our house. We talk about everything, we discuss everything, we deliberate on everything. Trust me, I talk a lot. We discuss all the time, everything. Uh, I even let her get in a word. Um, but the final decision, and therefore the responsibility, falls on me. Many women see this not as a bum deal, but as a blessing. That the final decision is on someone else which means the final responsibility is on someone else. You see this in the church as well, right? Again, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, which says, Submit to your leaders uh, because uh, they are those who will have to give an account. Right? Your leaders, us, the elders in the church, have to give an account to God for the way we lead in the congregation. In the same way, husbands will have to give an account to God for the way they lead in their families. Uh, that's a serious, uh, weighty responsibility. But... Really, we should back up and think about the bigger picture here. Why did God create it like this? Well, God is the author of creation. Uh, therefore, he has authority, being the author, to create it however he likes. Um, if you think, well, God has just kind of done things arbitrarily, I won't argue with that. Uh, but, of course, God is the one person who has a right to be arbitrary. The word arbiter means one who has a right to make a decision or to make a judgment. God is the ultimate arbiter. He is the one who can be arbitrary. He has the right to make these kinds of decisions. God decided to do it this way. That's his right. And yet we still come back to the question, why? Can we answer why? Well, actually, I think we can. Uh, Ephesians 5, which was read earlier, I'm going to read a large chunk of it again. Ephesians 5, 25 to 32 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why did God set up male-female relations as he has? As a picture of Christ and the church. Throughout the Bible, we find God and his people uh, compared to a bridegroom and a bride. Not because God one day realized, hey, that's a pretty good idea. That's a pretty good picture of my relationship to my people. Maybe I'll use that in the Bible. No, God created men and women to picture this reality. Creation is poetry. It is meant to give us a glimpse of who God is. The physical world and the physical order are meant to give us a, a glimpse of the spiritual reality that we cannot see with our eyes. And so, uh, for example, right, you have this fundamental covenant promise in Scripture. The fundamental covenant promise, uh, the promise from God to his people, is I will be your God and you will be my people. It's repeated again and again and again and again and again in Scripture. I will be your God and you will be my people. You turn to the book of, the Song, of Song of Solomon, which for thousands of years, both Jews and Christians interpreted as being about God and his people. And you turn to the book of Song of Solomon and what's one of the refrains? I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Right? I will be your God, and you will be my people. The book is fundamentally about the commitment between the husband and the wife, the bride and the bridegroom. Why? Because ultimately it's about the commitment between God and his people. Men and women were created to reflect this divine human relationship. Now, you still might think that, that women get a bum deal here, right? Men are created to reflect God in this relationship. What do women get? Well, here's one answer. Women are created to reflect fully what it means to be human. Make no mistake, in Scripture, God is masculine and humanity, all of humanity, men and women alike, are feminine. God initiates, we respond. God gives life, we receive it. God is the husband, we are the bride. And so as a husband implants his seed in the womb of the woman and thereby brings forth new life, resulting in a new birth, so God in 1 John 3, 9, places his seed in us and causes us to be born again. It's fitting then that it is men who speak the word of God, who sow that seed. My intent there is not to be vulgar, right, but to show that this imagery has a richness in Scripture. It is everywhere. And the more you open your eyes to it, the more you will see it. Jesus, our bridegroom, our knight in shining armor, has defeated our enemy, the devil, the dragon, to win the hand of the princess, us, you and me, his bride, the church. I mean, why do you think this story has been told for thousands of years about the man who defeats the enemy to win the bride? Because this is the story that God has written into our DNA. It's inescapable. It's not about superiority or inferiority. It's about reflecting the greatest love story ever written, whose author is God himself. This is why the quintessential Christian hope is what? 
sitting in the new creation at table for the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's our hope. The great Christian hope is a wedding reception and and not one in which we are merely guests. The great Christian hope is, is our wedding reception when we will be joined to our Savior Jesus in such an intimacy that we cannot now imagine. That is our femininity as the church. That is my femininity, right? That I'm part of the bride of Christ, that I've been given new life by God's seed, and yet I await the day of consummation. That's our life as the church. That's what it means to be human. And women reflect that in a a fuller way than men do. So we have this variety in giftedness. Everyone is given gifts to use for the building up of God's house. You have teaching in the church. It's reserved for men in the context of the gathered people of God. Poetry in creation. Men and women are a reflection of something bigger and more beautiful than we can now imagine. Fourth, finally, dignity in redemption. Uh, Interestingly, Paul does not uh, want to leave the discussion on the note of Eve's deception and sin. He keeps going to verse 15. Verse 15 says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, there are so many ways to misunderstand verse 15. Uh, One way to misunderstand verse 15 is to say that women receive salvation by having children. That is a complete misunderstanding of verse 15 that some have proposed. She will be saved through childbearing. Uh, Another way, which I think is also not quite getting uh, to what verse 15 is talking about, is to say that women will be physically delivered through through, through the trial of childbearing. Right? So they're delivered through that trial. That's better, but still not what I think verse 15 is getting at. The best way to understand this verse is to see that Paul is continuing to speak of Eve. Verse 14, uh, verse you know, 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was. Yet she, singular, will be saved through childbearing. Yet Eve, despite her deception, will be saved through, and there's actually an article in the Greek, will be saved through the childbearing. Eve will be saved through the childbearing. Paul is still thinking about Genesis chapter 3. God says, The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The woman will be saved through childbearing. Why? Because it is through childbirth that Jesus comes into the world. Eve's deception does not mean that, that women are somehow second class. Rather, God dignifies Eve and all women by sending the Redeemer through a woman without, by the way, the help of a man. God honors womanhood by allowing Mary to bring forth Jesus. It's not saying that that all women must have kids or that only women who have children should be honored in the church. That's decidedly not the case as you read through Scripture. Paul commends the single life for men and women alike. Lydia uh, is judged to be faithful to the Lord, though likely she's not a mother, but but she is definitely a businesswoman. As men and women, we have a common reflection of the image of God, Not all men sire children, right? Not all women give birth, but all reflect God's image in other ways. We even live out what it means to be masculine and feminine in other ways, which we don't have time to talk about. But what is uniquely feminine? There is nothing more quintessentially feminine than giving birth, right? You may not like that, but it's a biological fact. 
Men never do it. Only women do. And so by dignifying Eve and all women leading up to the Redeemer, by allowing them to play a role in, the, in, in bringing the Redeemer into the world, God is dignifying womanhood itself. God honors Mary by allowing her to bear and give birth to Jesus. And in so doing, womanhood itself is honored. Now, there are plenty of roles in the church for both men and women. Teaching or exercising authority is alone reserved for men. It's not because women are lesser or inferior, but it's because God has designed the world to reflect something bigger, his relationship to the world. And within male-female relations, the, the husband is a picture of, the, of Christ, the bride is a picture of the church. Women uniquely represent the glory of what it means to be human in our relationship to God. God dignifies this role by sending Jesus, born of a woman, to redeem men and women alike. And so despite whatever gender or social or cultural or economic differences might remain in this life, as we trust in Jesus in terms of our status before the Father, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess our, our ignorance on many of these issues and how to fully understand them and how to deal with them fully in light of our current uh, culture. Yet we just pray for wisdom and guidance that you would teach us from your word, that you would give us understanding, and that you would enable us to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.